Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics. And as is normal on Jobs Friday, uh, I have uh, three of my colleagues. Uh, uh, we've got Ryan, Ryan Sweet, the Director of Real-Time Economics. He's ready to go, I can see. And Mr. Dorides, uh, Dr. Dorides, Chris Dorides uh, in the office and looking dapper as as usual. Uh, I think we have the, the same outfit here. Oh, yeah. We... I, I was going to say we kind of look alike, but you look so much better than I do. So I'm not even in your league, uh, but uh, but oh, uh, glad so that modest. you noticed that. Yeah. Uh, so we both have a dark kind of sweater on, you know, kind of uh, with a zipper in the front here. So um, what was I going to say? Oh, you're the deputy chief economist. Very good. And uh, we've got Marissa, Marissa Di Natale. Marissa uh, has been with us on a, a number of these Jobs Fridays, a, a great labor market economist in her own right from the Bureau, formerly of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. We grabbed her from BLS and good to have you, Marissa. Thanks, Mark. Good to have you all aboard. So obviously Jobs Friday for the, you know, here we are talking about the jobs numbers for the month of March. And um, Ryan, take it away. What's, what do you, what's your takeaway from uh, the report? Well, there's nothing really to complain about. It was another really solid report. Uh, job growth in, in March rose uh, 431,000, a little bit less than what the consensus expected, but still- No, wait, anything... it was 435,000, wasn't it? Was it 31? 431. Oh, 431. my stand corrected. You're throwing, okay. me, throwing me for a loop there, <laughs> trying to catch me off just my guard. Just testing you, just testing yeah, okay. you. All right, because Mark never gets his numbers wrong, right? I just wanted to make sure you had the courage of your numbers. So, yeah, okay. So, job growth was broad based. I think there was only two major industries that saw a slight decline in employment. That was transportation, warehousing, and utilities. Uh, but overall, you know, job growth over the last six months is averaging close to six hundred thousand uh, per month, which is you know very very strong. Uh, we still have you know ways to go. I mean, the unemployment rate came down. It's it's the job market's tight. I mean, the unemployment rate came down to three point six percent. Uh, we're close to where we were pre-pandemic. I think the low pre-pandemic, right around three and a half percent. So we're getting there. Uh, my favorite number, prime age employment to population ratio. Yeah. So that's 25 to 54 as a share of the population rose from 79.5% in February to 80% in March. That's and that's an up a percentage point, right? In two months. Mm -hmm. So if a we keep this, this current point. pace going, we could be 81, 81 and a half percent on the prime age employment to population ratio by the end of the year. So that's a good indication. Uh, you know, the job market's doing really well. I mean, my takeaway is that it's good, but it's too good. We need, we need this has got to slow down, or we're going to be in a world of hurt. I mean, the economy is going to overheat. The Fed's going to panic, and you know, we're going to be facing a recession. Okay. Before we get there, though, let's just round this out. So, uh, though, let, let me ask you. Up until a couple few months ago, you you were kind of saying eighty percent on the mm -hmm. uh, prime age, fit twenty five to fifty year old. Employment to population ratio, your favorite measure of kind of the state of the labor market and where it is, was consistent with full employment. We're now at eighty percent on the nose. Are we at full employment? No, we're close. We're very yeah, close. We're close. So I think eighty-one, eighty-one and a half percent was what we saw late nineteen nineties, early two thousands. I think we can get back there, uh, and that would probably be you know that that would be a slam dunk that we're at full employment. But right now, I think we're we're close. We're barreling towards it. Are you and moving course, the goalposts? Yeah. That's bit. what I thought. <laughs> moving it just a little, just a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Because right, what else? Still, I mean, employment's still 6 million below where it would be if the pandemic didn't occur in the recession. So, you know. Maybe, maybe not. Right. Because Well, trend job growth was around 190,000 190, per month pre-pandemic. So if you just yeah. extend that, you know, we'd be 6 million higher than we are today. I, although I would throw out that we were at an inflection point for job growth, given the slowing in labor force growth that was going to happen anyway. And we probably would have been, if you remember the forecasts, and there's still a forecast, but go back to the forecast pre-pandemic for now, we were saying kind of break even in uh, uh, employment, monthly employment growth, meaning consistent with stable unemployment was something like 100K, you know, not much higher than right. that. Right. But okay. But even if you assume 100K, we're still, you know, a little bit lower than where we should be. Yeah. Not that we won't. We'll make that up pretty quickly in the next few months. Right. Um, uh, okay. Um, anything else on the jobs numbers you want to point out? Labor force continues to increase. Uh, yep. It was up more than 400,000 in March. Uh, 
this year alone, we're up over 2 million. So that's an encouraging sign that people are coming back into the labor force. Right. Now, the participation rate, which is another kind of barometer of you know whether you're at full employment or not, that ticked up to 62.4%. Mm-hmm. That's still well below where it was pre-pandemic. It was over 63%. I think 63 and a half, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, we that, won't get back there. We won't. Why? No, because of demographics. We have an aging population, people retiring, and we're not going to get back to you know, 63% on labor force participation. That's why prime age employment to population ratio is much more important in telling. Yeah, I mean, I but I look at that participation rate, I think we can get at least a half a point, right? Back. Oh yeah, we'll close the gap. I just don't think yeah. we'll get all the way back. But a half a point would be consistent with your point that we're not quite at full employment, but mm-hmm. we have still some room to go. So a half a point on the labor force, I think that translates into, what, a million, million and a half jobs. So that says what, we could add in addition to what you typically would get to get back to full employment. So that's, and that's about three months. About three At months. This current right. pa- yeah. This current pace is three months of job gains. And that, that sounds about right to you. Three months. That would be April, May, June. If I told you June, mm-hmm. full employment, that feels that feels about right to me. Yeah. Sometime this summer, I think we, we've got full employment. We'll get there. Okay. And that's when we would get back to recouping all the jobs that we lost during the pandemic. So it's about, if, if we're adding about half a million jobs a month, then by June, July, we're back above the employment level in February, 2020. And that's the payroll survey you're talking so that's about. That's on the payroll side, yeah. I think on the household survey, the payroll survey is a survey of business establishments. The payroll survey, which is the basis for the unemployment rate and participation rate and the things with those things, I think that's already pretty close to being back. I don't think, it, I think it's when within a few hundred thousand of getting all the way back to where we were pre-pandemic. can check, but I'm, I think that's the case. So Marissa, did you want to add anything to Ryan's um, perspective description of the jobs numbers? What do you miss? Uh, n- no, I think he got all the highlights. I mean, we're seeing labor supply kicking in. Um, participation rates were up among most of the major demographic groups, unemployment rates were down among most of the major demographic groups. Job growth was broad-based, not quite as broad-based as it was last month. I think last month, the diffusion index, which is the um, the percentage of all the detailed industries in the payroll survey that were adding jobs or staying the same, was up in the 80%. Now it was like in the 60s. So, um, but that's still very broad-based. I mean, over about two-thirds of industries are adding jobs or or at least not losing them. So yeah, it's hard to find anything bad in this. Um, average hourly yeah. earnings mm-hmm. were up. Um, the work week was flat. So hours were about the same as they were previously. Um, I think hours yeah. per work per week, that did decline. I think that yeah, declined. Fell a little bit. Like a, like it's, uh, barely, barely 10 minutes or yeah. six minutes yeah, or right. something yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. Hey, that that doesn't move. Adds up. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't move. Yeah. Okay. All right. So any, anything in the bowels of the report that was a blemish that kind of made you scratch your head or make you think about what the message is in that? Anything, anything you saw? doesn't have to be. I'm just asking. That's an open. No, that's what they call really. in, the, in the moderating biz, an open-ended question. Gosh. See how good I, I'm at this? I'm really pretty good. Yeah. Like, tell me what I, at, you know, I'm just saying, what didn't I ask you? Daycare employment rose. Huh? Daycare employment rose. Oh, it did. That's a good sign. It's still well below where it was pre-pandemic, but you know, we're moving in the right direction. Key to participation, right? Because you have Direct. a lot of uh, young women with yep. young children that or I should say women with young children that uh, can't get back in because they have daycare problems. Yeah. Okay. All right, Chris, anything uh, you wanted to point out? Uh, a couple things. One thing that struck me was uh, there was this phrase repeated a couple of times in the report, little different from its February, 2020 level. So uh, many of the indicators as you get in, in further into the bowels of the report are back to where they were or pretty close to where they were pre pandemic. So it does indicate that it's fairly broad-based, this uh, this uh, employment recovery. Um, 
I, so I, I, I missed yeah. that. So you're saying in the, I somehow I missed that. So in the BLS uh, language, the yeah. when they describe it, the report, they said back to February 2020 levels? Yeah, so level different. Uh, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Uh, let's see. Uh, for example, number of permanent job losers is uh, at a level that is little different from its February 2020 level. Mm, right? And they repeated that language for a number of the different uh, indicators. So that just kind of stuck mm -hmm. in my head reading it. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that did st stick out was there was a slight decline in the number of uh, workers in oil and gas exploration, which seems counterintuitive, right? So not a whole lot, right? We're talking like, I don't know, 400 jobs or something, but uh, still you would have expected it to go the oh, other why? way. Yeah. 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 So um, Maybe seasonal adjustment though. I don't know. Could be. Could yeah. be. We did yeah. see, uh, there was a larger gain in um, refining though, petroleum products, right? So expiration may be down, but you do see some job gains in actual um, transformation uh, of crude refining of truth. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I think you guys covered it. The I guess the wage growth, I, and I really don't like using the wage numbers from this report because it's so messed up by the mix of jobs and occupations. Yeah, you said it best. They're worthless. Yeah, they're worthless, but I still talk, you guys still talk about them, right? Yeah. I mean, so we're up year over year five, six, I think. So, and if you look at all the other wage measures, the ones that I think are better, like the Atlanta Fed wage tracker or the employment cost index, it, that feels consistent, right? Somewhere around five, 6%. Is that right, Marissa? Is that roughly right in terms of yeah, wages? Yeah, they're all yeah. around five and a half, five, six, five, seven, something like that. Which, which is strong, but not inflation. So consumer right. price inflation, I think it, almost 8%, right? It's through through the through February. So uh, right now workers are getting big wage increases, but they're not keeping pace with inflation. So their so-called real wage, their uh, nominal wage growth less inflation is negative. So they're kind of falling behind here. Yeah. yeah. Unless you work in leisure hospitality, then exactly. your wages are up like 15% over the year. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. And that's where the wage growth has been most pronounced. And if you look yes. at the land, the land of Fed wage tracker data, it does suggest that it's, again, it's the strongest wage growth is low wage workers in those high contact industries that got nailed during the pandemic. They're scrambling to get people back into, into their seats. There tend to be uh, uh, younger folks with lesser skills and education. Um, that's who's seeing the biggest wage increases. In fact, if you believe the wage tracker data, it says that folks, high wage workers are, you know, they're they're not seeing much of a wage acceleration in wage growth at all, you know, pretty consistent with what it was pre-pandemic. Yeah. It's also the low income households. So those that are seeing the strongest wage growth are the ones being hurt the most by high inflation. So that's, you know, kind of cushioning the bluff. Yeah. Hey, uh, one thing I want, I do want to talk about what this all means for monetary policy in the Fed, because that's top of mind. But before uh, we do this, uh, I did, Ryan, you've been doing some pretty good work on trying to understand the causality, the relationship between wages and prices. So what's driving what? And are they both, you know, obviously we're, there's a, a great deal of concern, and this goes to monetary policy, that we're going to get into this kind of self-reinforcing wage price spiral where uh, workers are, see their cost of living rise, they demand higher wages, wage growth from their employers, employers then provide that, pass that along in the form of higher prices, meaning inflation, and you get into this kind of self-reinforcing, very vicious kind of cycle that the only way out of that is the Fed breaking it. And that means, you know, recession in all likelihood. What What's your research show you on that that dynamic? How's that playing out right now? It's actually the opposite. So we have a price wage spiral where inflation is causing wages to increase. So the the causality actually runs just one way, inflation causing changes in wages. So uh, that's you know, that's still you know a concern. I mean, that's still inflation that's causing inflation, but it's less of a problem and things that we lose less sleepovers that you know it's not a wage price spiral that like kind of you know gripped the economy in the late 1970s, early 1980s that caused the Fed to to really clamp down on uh, tightening monetary policy to break inflation's back. Right now, it's it just seems. Uh, inflation is driving wages currently. Now that causation can change. I don't know what would trigger it or when, but 
as of right now, it's less concerning to me that uh, inflation is driving wages higher. And that is consistent with kind of this group's thinking around what's causing the proximate cause for the higher inflation, and that is the pandemic effects on the supply side of the economy, supply chain disruptions, yep. you, know, the, uh, you know, the labor market disruption, people are sick or fearful of getting sick so they don't go to work. So it, it's, it, it's on the good side of the economy where uh, labor costs are much less important in terms of driving price increases. Correct. That's where we're seeing inflation has picked up pretty much across the board, but that the 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 most significant acceleration has been in the good side, vehicles being the poster child and energy prices, that kind of thing. So what you're what you're describing is consistent with that kind of uh, explanation for what's going on here. What, and, yeah, more than half of our inflation problem. So we have eight percent inflation, give or take. Yeah. Uh, four percentage points of that is. Uh, energy and supply chains. So a good chunk of the inflation problems are isolated to those two components. And of course, we desirables too. So you're really talking about the six percentage point acceleration in inflation. Four percentage points of that is due to these factors you just Correct. Saw. Yeah. Okay. Hey, uh, Chris, uh, Marissa, any, any, any observations or thoughts on that dynamic, wage price dynamics that we just described? Just, just curious if you have any thoughts on that. Have you done any work in that area? I think that's right. But as yeah. Ryan said, things can change pretty quickly. That's the nature of the spiral, right? So uh, you could see prices being influenced by the higher wage costs in short order. Yeah. What, what, do, you, what do you think? Oh, sorry, go Marissa. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, one way of gauging that is to see how broad-based wage gains are. And because we still see this huge disparity among wage growth in these traditionally lower wage industries that were really hit by the pandemic compared to, you know, professional service jobs or jobs that were kind of insulated from the pandemic because people could keep their jobs and work from home, it does suggest that there is still that catching up from the pandemic bounce back that's happening, right? So it's not, everyone's not getting 10% wage increases. It really is very isolated to a few industries at this point. Um, and also the other thing the Atlanta wage tracker uh, tracks, and I think you've mentioned this before, is the difference between people that switch jobs, get new jobs, and people staying right. in their jobs, right? And you see um, one of the largest gaps between those two now. So people that are getting new jobs and switching jobs and able to negotiate new wages are getting significantly higher wage gains than people staying in their current jobs. That's always the case, right? That's always how you get the biggest wage gain is by leaving a job and getting a new one. But that gap between the two is larger than it's been in a very, very long time. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Hmm. Yeah. It's maybe about one and a half percentage points higher for people that are switching jobs. And just to remind everyone, the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, and you can Google it, go Atlanta Fed wage tracker, you'll go right to it. It's, it's kind of a nice little tool there. You can cool data very timely through February of 2022. That tracks the same worker uh, through time. So it's, it's controlling for those mixed problems that I just articulated was a problem with the average hourly earnings data that's in the today's jobs number. So why it's so useful to look at. Okay. Um, any. Uh, 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 can you see anything in the report uh, that might connect back to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? I mean, Russia invaded Ukraine, you know, back, I think it was now late February, right? Yep. And of course, we all had, there was growing evidence that they were going to do that for at least a few weeks before that. Any, and of course, the March employment data we're looking at today was based on a survey done by the BLS kind of mid-March. So that was now well into the Russian-Ukraine. We had seen oil prices spike at that point, and there's already a lot of concern about what Russia-Ukraine means for global commodity markets and the global economy. Anything in the report at all that connects, that gives you a sense that you know businesses are worried about Russia-Ukraine and its impact on their, on, on their business or, and on their hiring or layoffs? Anything? I, I didn't see it. I'm just asking. I didn't see anything. Nothing. Yeah. Marissa, Chris, did you guys see anything at all? No. Okay. 
Even employment and remember, we had that big decline in auto manufacturing employment last month, and it it didn't fully reverse itself, but there was an increase in auto manufacturing employment this month. So these sectors that are really sensitive to you know consumer spending or consumers substituting one good away from another, high gas prices, that doesn't really seem to be showing up in a compelling way. Yeah. Okay. Chris, you're you're a maven of LinkedIn, aren't you? I think you're well known on LinkedIn. Well known, yeah, yeah. <laughs> isn't he? Isn't he? Oh, you're not on LinkedIn, are you, Ryan? No, I'm on there. Oh, you are? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, see every, I hear Chris is all over off. LinkedIn. Yeah, Chris is a day. frequent poster. Yeah, my He's phone frequent poster. throughout the day just beeps because yes. Chris is posting <laughs> things on LinkedIn. <laughs> He's tagging you and stuff. Yeah, it's just it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nothing else to do, so you know. No, I <laughs> Don't say that. Uh, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, so I was listening to this um, researcher from LinkedIn, and uh, they can track like real time kind of engagement from people on the LinkedIn site, and with regard to looking at job postings and applying for jobs and that kind of thing. It's global; it's all over the world. And she was saying that on the day of the invasion, I guess going back to late February. And you look at engagement in the U.S., there was no change. You know, the same level of engagement in the day before and the day after. No one was really, at least in terms of job search, paying any attention to Russia, Ukraine. But a very noticeable effect on engagement, job search in Europe, uh, which makes, I guess, perfect sense, but, you know, is interesting. So it does seem to suggest that uh, Russia, Ukraine is going to have a much bigger impact on the European economy than our economy. And that, again, that's what we've expected, but it, it is interesting to see that it's actually already showing up in the in a, anecdotal data. And I'm sure we'll see it in the economic statistics soon. So very interesting. Yeah, Chris, he's um, got to get off LinkedIn. Might improve, his, might improve his employment forecast. <laughs> Do a little bit more modeling? Is that what you're mm -hmm. suggesting? Oh, a little, yes, take a little oh. more time, dig into it. Ouch. Right. Ouch. Mm -hmm. That's a, you know. Yeah, he's tough. sorry, Chris. We're all, I, we're, I, yeah. Rev, I mean, remember revisions. Revisions are coming. So, mm -hmm. exactly. Good point. Okay, so let's uh, let's now talk about what all this means for monetary policy. And actually, if you we yeah. didn't, I don't think you mentioned the revisions. Yeah, that's a good oh, point. Oh, good but point. But if you if you add in the revisions to the previous couple months, right. then you're over five hundred thousand jobs, right? So so we had four thirty one. In March, but then January and February combined were an un another ninety-five thousand jobs. Yeah, so I think that's uh, victory. For, I think uh, so. I'm gonna, yeah. No, I, I think for those of us who now. said yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there'd be over half a million jobs added. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, and we've been get consistently getting upward revisions each and every month for the past more than a year, right? I mean. Yeah, I mean the January job gain is over seven hundred thousand with this with these revisions yeah. alone. Yeah, pretty amazing. Um, okay, so let's talk about what it, when obviously really strong job growth, rapidly falling unemployment, rapidly increasing e uh, employment to population ratios, very strong wage growth. I, I don't know what does it mean for monetary policy. I mean, watch out, watch out, right? Yep. I mean, green light. Yeah, yeah, they're so, they're close to breaking glass, like that panic button. They're about to hit it. Yeah, and what does that mean exactly? Aggressive rate hikes. So fifty basis points in May, fifty basis points in June. So half a percentage point in May that'd bring mm -hmm. the funds rate target, the key rate they control, to uh, seventy-five basis points, three quarters of a percentage mm -hmm. point. Then you're saying another half percentage point in June when they meet in Correct. June. Okay, that makes you at one point seven five percent, and then what? And then twenty five for the remaining meetings this year. So, so we get so we'll end the year two okay. and a quarter, two and a half percent on the Fed funds rate, which is pretty close to the so called, I guess, neutral, neutral rate. Our star, the equilibrium rate, where yeah, where, the, where everyone kind of thinks the funds rate should be in the long run if everything is functioning mm -hmm. properly. Yeah, and they we'll won't stop there. Yeah, they'll go higher. So then that puts monetary policy restrictive. So when you hit the neutral rate, it's kind of it's neither stimulating or slowing down the economy. But when you go above that, that's when 
you know, the Fed's pushing hard on the brakes. Yeah. So, so that's the so-called terminal rate. That's where they uh, ultimately push the funds rate to at the peak. Mm-hmm. And what do you think that is in this rate cycle? Well, the Fed's own forecast, their summary of economic projections have it 2.75. So, so just above neutral. Just Yeah. I think we'd probably get, get to three. Okay. So uh, this is, is this what you think they should do? This is what, no. this is, this is what they will do. Right. I mean, it, our job in forecasting is what the Fed will do, not what they should do. Although, I don't think they should I've panic. Always, you always say that, but you know, it, the way I think about it is what should they do? And then, because <laughs> they generally do what I think they should do. That's therefore what they will do. There's, it's rarely different. Is it different this time? I mean, are you saying what they should do and what they will do is different? Yeah, just like in 2015, I didn't think they should have raised rates in 2015, but they did. So, so they're going to okay. make a mistake. Yeah, they're, they're going to make a mistake by going too aggressively. Okay. Okay. So they're reacting to, I mean, they described the labor, like Powell described the labor market, so Fed Chair Powell, as unhealthy. Like that's, you know, that's panic to him is, yeah, you know, we have high inflation, we have a, Unemployment rate that's plummeting, so they're going to uh, really slam slam their foot on the brakes. Okay, so you so you're saying what they will do is half a point in May, half a point mm-hmm. in June, quarter point rate hikes after that until they get to two right. and three quarters percent sometime in what early 2023. Correct, and that will be too much. Meaning, what does that mean exactly? What does that mean too much? It means the economy is going to come. Well, we'll get close. I mean, it could be. Okay. I mean, it, All right, it, so you're saying if they do that, if they stick to that script, there's no soft is, landing. This, then it's going to be hard to have a soft landing. Correct. Okay. All right. Interesting. All right. Well, so if you, were, if you were sitting well, on the Fed, what would you do? Yeah. And that would be interesting to see what Marissa and Chris would do. Well, of course, I don't have to. I don't have to put in stone what I'm going to do for the next year because who you know I I'll, I'll adapt and adjust. The only thing I have to make a decision about right now is what I'm going to do at the next meeting, right? And I think so would you go fifty? Yeah, I I absolutely I would go. I would raise it a half a percentage point. And the other thing I would do is I would announce that I'm going to start to allow my balance sheet to wind down. So as everyone knows, the Fed up until March was buying treasury bonds and mortgage securities. That was quantitative easing, bond buying to get try to bring down interest rates, long-term rates. They've stopped buying in March, but they, you know, my sense is by May, they'll say, okay, let's allow the treasuries and mortgage securities on my balance sheet to run off as they mature, or in the case of mortgage securities, they might prepay, although I don't expect a lot of that in the current rate environment, and allow the balance sheet to come down, which is kind of adding to the rate increases. So I, I would mm-hmm. I would do both those things, what you call passive uh, uh, quantitative tightening and a half a point increase in the funds rate target. Well, that's what they're going to do. Yeah, they're going to okay. announce both. Yep. Oh, that's, okay, so that's what I was saying. I, mm-hmm. Usually what I think they should do, they, they, they will do. It's rare. Okay, so, but you, you wouldn't do that if you were on the FOMC? No, I'd go 25. I'd go 25 and let the balance sheet run off. I'm afraid it's too much all at once. Especially yeah. with the yield curve flat as a pancake, I mean, I'd, I'd be, I'm concerned. Right. We'll come back to that in a second. Chris mm-hmm. uh, or Marissa, uh, any different perspective on this? Or what's your view? A short you term. I agree on the short term, certainly 50. And um, I would actually, if it was me, I would start to unwind the balance sheet now. Why wait? Yeah, right. Why actually wait? Send, a, why, send even a stronger signal that you know, we're really concerned about this. Um, I don't think they're going to be quite, I don't think they're going to be able to be quite as aggressive later in the year. I think some other factors will, uh, will pop up here. We still have other risks uh, to growth. Uh, so I, I don't think we'll get all the way to, to Ryan's uh, trajectory here, but certainly the path is upward. It's just a question of speed. All right, I forgot to ask Ryan. So the Fed in their forecast says the terminal rate, the peak on the peak funds rate is going to be two and three quarters. What's your terminal rate? What? Yeah, right around there. I right think around. Get up okay. there. Just get I mean, there more slowly. Chris has a great point. Like the markets could push back. 
And I mean, if you look at the market's implied path, they're already pricing in a policy misstep. They're they're penciling rate cuts towards the end of next year and into early 2024. Hey, can I ask you about that? Because uh, I got a, a tweet, uh, by the way, at Mark Zandy. I'm go. just saying, you know, at Mark Zandy. And Ryan, what's your what's your your Twitter handle? At real time underscore at real time. Okay, so uh, I had a, a, a Twitter follower tweet a question, and they said, "You guys talk about these probabilities of the Fed doing X, Y, and Z. So now you're saying we're going to have a half a point increase in uh, the funds rate target at the May meeting. Uh, can you tell us what's what's the market probability of that happening? And, and can you just tell everyone how you arrive at that? How do you know that? So there's, there's something called Fed funds futures where you know, people, it's, it's investors putting money where their mouth is and you know, buying what you know, the futures contract for each FOMC meeting for the rest of this year are. Uh, and out of that price, you can back out you know, the probability of you know, different outcomes at the FOMC meeting. So with the May contract, currently where it's priced at is implying a 73% probability of a 50 basis point. Uh, and that's in the month of May. Correct. That's the May contract for the Fed Funds right. Futures. May contract. Seven, 73% probability. Oh, I'm surprised it's not higher than that. 73% probability. Okay. What about June? Do you know that offhand? I don't. I can, I can look it up. No worries. I'm just curious. I, okay. I, it's probably north of 50. Yeah. Okay. Why so a good rule of thumb is 70%. That's kind of like historically, you know, leading up to FOMC meetings, if the probability of you know, 25 or 50 basis point rate hike is more than 70%, the Fed usually follows through because they don't want to surprise markets. So right. as May gets closer, if the probability of a 50 basis point hike is north of 70%, they're going to go 50 basis points. Right. Okay. Marissa, you're now on the FOMC. You're a Fed member. Uh, what would you do with regard to setting of the policy? You know, the decision is what, what's going to happen in May at the May meeting. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to, they have to take it <clears throat> meeting by meeting because right. things are changing so rapidly. If nothing major happens between now and May, then 50 basis points seems reasonable. They have so much to play with on the balance sheet that I would maybe do more there. And I also, I wonder if, if letting the balance sheet run off has a different psychological effect on the market than announcing an outright rate hike. Um, I don't know if you know the answer to that, Ryan, but they, they've they got such an enormous balance sheet. Um, I think they can certainly wind that down, um, which they they haven't done yet, right? But announcing a rate hike might have a different effect on investors and markets in general. Yeah. Well, well, I, I think, uh, the, the, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, but the evidence suggests that the most significant impact of the Fed's balance sheet uh, policy on financial conditions and on the economy is through the signaling effects, correct. not just so much the actual purchases. So, they're, they're using that as a signaling mechanism to investors that, hey, I'm going to you know, be very aggressive in easing or tightening. And that, that's really where the juice comes from, mostly, I think. Is that right, Ryan? That's correct. Yeah. yeah you can see, like, when you look at, you kind of can do event studies looking at the impact on you know, interest rates uh, or financial market conditions when they make announcements versus actually following through with changes to the balance sheet policy. And, uh, the largest impact is when they make these signaling uh, through the signaling channel. Yeah. Hey, one thing that no one's talking about, and I'm wondering if they should, is the Fed has another tool or tools, and that is regulatory policy, right? I mean, one thing I've noticed is in the housing market, you know, rates have jumped uh, in anticipation of what the Fed's going to do and the higher inflation. So mortgage rates, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, is on the Freddie Mac, his thirty-year mortgage is now four six five, I believe. Last week, that's up. That's still low by historical standards, but that's up a lot in a very short period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Market feels like it's starting. Housing market feels like it's starting to freeze up because these higher mortgage rates are conflating with the high house prices and affordability is getting crushed. And you're starting to see lenders, and this is completely typical. 
they say, oh my gosh, I, you know, I can't originate loans uh, to keep things going. They're starting to lower their underwriting standards. They're becoming more aggressive in accepting borrowers with lower credit scores or higher debt to income ratios, higher loan to value ratios. Um, for, I guess the first question to you, Chris, is have you observed that yet? Are you hearing that? Is that something that's going on? I haven't really heard much of that uh, happening, right? Uh, so it, it's possible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Certainly with refinance volumes uh, going off a cliff, you want you certainly want to keep your operations, but you know, there's just not the number of sales is also quite low as well, right? Because of the limited inventory. So it's possible, but I don't I don't know that um, we'll see that dynamic play out this cycle just because of what happened last time around. Right. Well, I guess I bring that up because, you know, that dynamic of lenders kind of easing at the same time the Fed's tightening is yeah. pretty classic. And that generally creates problems because some of those, that bad lending, that weaker underwriting gets caught in the subsequent economic slowdown or recession, and it exacerbates the recession and downturn. And, you know, maybe the Fed should use its regulatory, put on its regulatory hat and say, hey, you know, for example, they could you know, juice up capital standards for banks, right? And say, hey, you need to hold more capital because we're, you know, you're taking more risk here and, or at least we're concerned that you're going to take more risk or, or simply I, I want things to slow down. You know, I want things to slow down. Uh, but what do you think? Is that, that's kind of like a cudgel when you need a yeah. kind of a scalpel, I guess. Possible, but the banks are overcapitalized, right? They're they, well, I expect them to sail through CCAR this year, the stress testing exercise, and no problem. So they would really have to ramp it up substantially. And I don't know that if that's, uh, if that's on the agenda. So I, I do think that they'll be mindful. I don't think they're going to let things loosen up here uh, significantly, but I don't see them going down that route necessarily. I think the rates themselves are going to be enough. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, the, the Fed um, puts out you know the every January their long run policy objectives, and they reinforce the idea that the Fed funds rate, the target Fed funds rate, is their primary lever. So it's like, to Marissa's point about using the balance sheet, like they'll use it, but the Fed funds rate is their primary tool. So they're going to lean right. on that pretty heavily. I guess the other argument against the Fed actually turning to regulatory policies, they don't have a uh, person on the Fed, right? To manage supervision, right? So there's a vice chair of supervision. They had uh, the Biden administration had nominated uh, 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 Raskin to to do that, and she didn't make her. She didn't, was unable to get through Congress, and so that 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 position is still empty. So that might make it more difficult to use that as a tool. I think in the current environment. Okay. Hey, um, you you mentioned the yield curve, Ryan, uh, because you were saying, look. Uh, one reason why I think the Fed might be overdoing it here uh, and raising rates too quickly is the shape of the yield curve. It uh, it's gone flat. Do you want to just describe what what, what that is and what's going on there? And uh, you know, there was this goes back to another question a uh, uh, a person who tw tweeted to me on the, asking you know what kind of indicators should we be watching to gauge where the economy is headed and the thing that comes to my mind immediately is the shape of the yield curve. Yeah. So the yield curve is the difference between long-term treasury securities. Uh, so the 10-year treasury yield versus uh, a measure of short-term interest rates. Uh, you, so right now, all the attention is on the, the difference between the 10-year treasury yield and the two-year treasury yield. So that's one measure of the yield curve. Uh, and that temporarily inverted earlier today. And I think it inverted uh, earlier this week. Uh, an inversion, you know, typically is an indication that uh, investors are worried about the economy's near-term prospects. Uh, the yield curve is has a pretty good track record. I'm skeptical of it. A pretty good track record in predicting recessions, uh, but this inversion that we've gotten today and earlier this week is a soft inversion. It's a it's a blip. You need a hard inversion. You know, probably 30, 60 days of a yield curve being inverted. Also, the 102 has sent false signals. The the best measure of the, the yield curve is the 10-year minus the three-month treasury bill yield. Uh, but that's being anchored by the Fed, Fed funds rate. That's keeping that you know, three-month treasury bill yield really, really low. That's going to start to increase and flatten out that yield curve as the Fed you know, begins to dial back on or begins to 
rate, uh, increased rate, uh, increased interest rates going forward. So all in all, the yield curve is going to continue to flatten out. And that, you know, the, the Fed has the yield curve on its mind because again, it's track record in predicting recessions. And when the Fed is tightening and the yield curve inverts, that's a recipe for an economic downturn. You said it's it's falsely predicted recessions. When? Yeah, the ten two has. Oh, it has when? I didn't realize that. 60, 1960s. Oh, I want oh, to say oh, oh. 67 yeah, right. or 69. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You're really stretching, buddy. You have to go all the way back to 1967. Hey, hey, it's Jeez, it's false signal. It's not perfect. It's not, not perfect, Mark. Okay. Yeah. I, was it Was it a hard inversion back in 67? Yeah. Okay. Because I tend to only look back to like the late 70s, to, you know, uh, but and, and since the late 70s, I don't think it's ever falsely predicted a recession. I don't think, right, Chris? Well, I mean, you got to put an asterisk on the 2020 recession. There was no why? need for a re- I, I don't <laughs> know. Why? Why? A I pandemic? Had, yeah. The yield curve did not predict a pandemic. That is false. No, but it was predicting a recession. And we and, right. and I, was, I think there may very well have been a recession. There would in, not in have been a recession without a pandemic. Not because of the pandemic, but because you know, the proximate cause would have been the trade war. But you know, it's it was signaling something. I you know, the pandemic just came along. It's, no, okay, no. all right. I, I think so. We'll never know. We'll never know. That's the problem. <laughs> we'll never. This, know. This could be the end of the podcast. Why the, the yield curve? What do you mean? It's going to cause some tensions between the three of us. Oh, <laughs> this is going to cause a lot. No, of, no, no. Is going to have to our, chime in. Uh, uh-uh. the the podcast. Is it will over, survive? Over, yeah. Oh. oh, yeah. This podcast, right? There's no way they break us apart. Not, That's not like the tension. Curve. People yeah. are here for the tension. Yeah, they're here That's for right. the tension. <laughs> yeah, they're here for the tension. Uh, okay, let's play the inversion game. In, you, in you thought my, I forgot about? Okay. Oh, sorry, Chris. You wanted to say something? I was going to say the inversion in 2019 was September. It wasn't that large, and it wasn't that long. No. Right? So I don't even know if it, it qualified as a hard inversion. I don't know. Did it actually invert for? All right. So there's another false alarm. It was a, I think it was a, like a week. It wasn't. Yeah, yeah it was no, that's what I'm saying. You need, you need at least a month or two, I think, to get some kind of signal. So it, maybe that's a yellow flag. Yellow uh, flag. Inv- inversion. And you're saying the red flag inversion is when it's yeah, more than Ryan 10 basis points. Called it a hard inversion. Yeah, hard inversion. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but I, but it, with all the caveats though, wouldn't you agree that if you had to look at one indicator, you had one indicator to pick. To try to gauge which way the economy is going in a period like this, when you're trying to gauge whether it's going to go into recession or not, would be the yield curve, right? I'd actually go with, and we'll see what Marissa says about this one, the unemployment rate. I know it's backward looking, but historically, if the unemployment rate increases by 25 or 30 basis points on a three-month moving average basis, it's, it's over. The recession yeah. always follows. It's not. There's no false signals there. Fair, fair, but that gives you no warning because yeah. once that happens, not, you you are actually in recession. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. yeah, but I'm just saying yeah. if you want to try and test it, measure, okay. that's that's it. Okay, so just, again, for because yeah. for, the listener asked, just describe that, that other measure you just mentioned. The unemployment rate? Yeah. Yeah, so when the, on a three-month moving average basis, if the unemployment rate increases by 25 or 30 basis points, uh, a recession always follows because it's, the self-reinforcing cycle kicks in. You see unemployment going up. People start to get pessimistic. They cut back on spending. That leads to more layoffs, and that drives the unemployment rate even higher. So you just kind of go around and around. And that also is kind of consistent with the the observation that the lower the unemployment rate goes, the more likely it's going to rise. Right. And when it rises, watch out, you know, because this this bad dynamic takes hold. And yeah, that's why I watch jobless claims. Yeah. Because that gives you kind of an early warning on what the unemployment rate is. Okay, there's a third one. You're really good Mm -hmm. at this. We can spend hours. I know we could. Yeah. Okay. All right. If you had to pick one, it's the If you had to pick one, (laughs) he's saying the the unemployment rate. I I still say the the, uh, yield curve. But anyway. I'll go with jobless claims. Oh, geez. Okay. Um, We got to play the game. You think I forgot about the game, the statistics game. So... uh, so just to remind everyone, uh, the uh, this game is we each announce a statistic. The rest of us try to figure out what that is, you know, through questioning, deductive reasoning. We're we're allowed to quiz the uh, the person who put it forward. The best question or the best statistic, I should say, is one that's uh, you know not too easy. That's a slam dunk. One that's not too hard. That we'll never get it. One that's kind of related to recent performance. You know, generally. 
something that happened in the past week or related to the topic at hand, which obviously today is the job market. So with that as a preface or a description, Marissa, I'm going to turn to you first. What's your statistic? And Marissa, she's had a checkered past with this game, as I recall. Something about positive, negative signs. I can't. She has a love hate. She has a love hate relationship with this game. <laughs> a love hate relationship. Yeah. We're, oh, we're, God. oh, by it's the way, exhausting. This, uh, by the way, <laughs> by the way, I, this is April one. This is where April two uh, is the first year anniversary of our podcast. The first, very first podcast we did was April second, twenty twenty one. And Mercy, you were, you weren't on the first podcast, but you were. One of our initial podcastees, I believe. I believe early within on. the first month. Yeah, I and I think that on, is that yeah. that first time you were on, you kind of got the negative with the positive sign, right? Okay. Yes. <laughs> a year later, and we're still talking about it. <laughs> we're still talking about it. A year. I guess. Uh, okay, I promise I won't bring that up again. But Ryan definitely will. I will. I will. All right. So, what's your number? Thanks for letting me go first because I was afraid someone would steal it. Um, okay, my number is. 5.5 million in March. Okay. Labor market data statistic. Yes. Okay. Yep. In today's numbers, employment report. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, in the, in the ho- household survey. Yes. The number of unemployed. No. Oh, wait, that's, that's pretty close though. I the number of close. unemployed is that's six. It's five, mm-hmm. six. No, six million, right? Unemployed. Uh, no, I, I, I think it's lower than that. I think it's five. Yeah, it's like 5.9, 5.9, yeah. I think. Someone look it up because I'll right, look it up right up. now. Five point seven. That's my number. Five point five. Okay. It's All right. So, six, but it, anyway, that's oh, not your number. Five point. Yeah, that's not the number. The number yeah. of unemployed in March was five point. Is it the number nine. of people? Oh, 5. The number 9. of people not in the labor force but want a job. You are correct, sir. Ooh. That is it. Ooh, watch out. Yep. Good guess. Okay. So what is no, that again? It's not a guess. Is, no, so I, it's the number of people that aren't in the labor force, but yep. say that they want a job. Right. Okay. So the reason I picked that is because we're talking about participation rate rising, labor supply starting to kick in, um, you know, the EPOP ratio coming up. I, I think it's interesting because a lot of the people in this category they're, they're saying that they want a job, but they haven't looked for a job in the last year. And that might be, they also, or they might've looked, but they may not be available to take a job, which are two of the requisites to be counted as unemployed. There's a disproportionate share of that group that are women versus men that are in this want a job group. Mm. Um, and it's about half a million higher than its pre-pandemic low. So it was right around 5 million, <clears throat> excuse me, in February of 2020. So I think that that represents more labor supply that's out there. And we've seen the, the participation rate in the past few months and since the start of the year, in particular, rising among prime-aged women. And if a lot of these women are in this want a job, but I haven't looked or I'm not available to take one right now category, that could represent you know, if we get down to that pre-pandemic level, that's another half million people that could potentially come into the labor force over the next few months. Um, Can I ask so, you, oh, sorry, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, go no ahead. so in trying to kind of uh, gauge how much labor supply is left before morale, yeah. you know, what we're doing is we're kind of comparing all these numbers to pre-pandemic numbers. And I think that's reasonable. Uh, we don't have a better option. And if you do that, as you say, this the number of people that are out of the workforce that want a job, that feels like labor supply, and it's a half million or so above what it was pre-pandemic. So that's a half million. At the current rate of job growth, by the way, that's one month. We can that's absorb right. those right. folks. And then the unemployment rate is at 3.6, and I don't think there's anything left there really, right? Because pre-pandemic unemployment rate was 3.5. 3.5, right? yeah. So maybe- I don't know, 100, 200,000, something like that. Where else would you get labor supply, you know, based on that kind of arithmetic that I'm doing? It's, it's, it's either the unemployed or I'm not in the labor force because I'm not looking. That's the, that's the number, of, number of folks that are not in the labor force but want a job. So is there any other source of supply here? 
I think it's I think it's going to come mostly for people from people that are not in the labor force at this point. I mean, even if you look at all the other statistics around unemployment, people that are unemployed long term, like 27 weeks or less, that's actually below now, I think, where it was prior to the pandemic or people that are losing jobs, layoffs. I mean, look at jobless claims, right, in the past few weeks. I mean, they've fallen into the extremely low territory. So people aren't getting laid off. Even the number of people that left jobs last month, according to the the household survey, fell. Um, So it seems to me it's got to be people that left the labor force during the pandemic and are starting to come back. We've even seen, you know, we, we talked about the great retirement or the great resignation or whatever people have called it. There's even been some upturn in older people who had left the labor force during the pandemic coming back. So maybe these people that we thought left the labor force and said, okay, this is a good time to retire. seems like some of them are even beginning to come back a bit. Although so, I, you know, I, I, saw the, I saw that statistic. It's called the you know, exit rate from retirement. And if you look at the exit rate from retirement, it, it actually collapsed early in the pandemic. No surprise, but now it's completely normalized, meaning back to where you would have expected to be without the pandemic. So it's almost like can't even look to that for any additional, mm-hmm. unless you unless it rises above, you know, the trend, you know, the pre-pandemic trend. Right. So, so I'm getting like I'm trying to figure out where do you get the people? I mean, right? I mean, yeah, people I mean, that are in school, people that are not in the labor force because they're worried about getting sick. Now with the p- pandemic, hopefully winding down, they'll come back in. So you're saying those are folks that are not in the labor force, but don't want a job at this point in time Correct. because they're still- That's where you're going to get it. Okay, fine. Okay. That, There's okay. some- think of that. Yeah. Some immigration too, right? There was just announcement of an uh, increasing number of visas. Mm-hmm. So you're right. saying the rate of underlying labor force or, or of a working age population- is going to grow is going to is accelerating here because of easing up on immigration laws as the pandemic fades we'll get more immigrants coming into the country the the, the right. that'll increase in help okay yeah. all right okay so we've got a little bit more to go on the number of unemployed we've got you know a half a million or so labor force not in the labor force but want a job we've got folks that are probably still out there kind of waiting for the dust to clear the dust to settle on the pandemic before they come in. We'll get a little bit more juice as immigration picks up here. And if you kind of add all of that up, we might have a million and a half or 2 million jobs left to go before we're, you know, tight as a drum, like we were pre-pandemic. That's kind of the arithmetic, right? Okay. All right. Yeah. And I, and I agree just back to the, what Ryan was talking about earlier. I don't think we're going to get back to the participation rate that we saw prior to the pandemic. I mean, you, you'd need to get back to that participation rate with the current po- population. You need a couple million people to come into the labor force. And that's just given what we just talked about. Where do you get a couple million people unless immigration really picks up? I mean, that's really the the marginal gain. And I don't think that, that it's going to be no, that, large. that large. Just demographics. I just don't think just given baby boomers aging out of the working age population, I don't think we're going to get back to that. Okay. All right, Chris, uh, I know you need to leave in a 10 minutes or so. So let's yeah. uh, get your statistic. Uh, I don't okay. hold you. Yeah, minus, minus 274,000. Are you sure it's minus? I'm positive it's minus. You're positive that it's minus. A decrease. <laughs> how about a decrease of 274,000? Okay, there you go. And that's it's in the employment numbers. Yes. It's in the household survey? Yes. Oh, it's is it the number of it's is it in the number of unemployed people? Is it in the unemployment? Yeah, it's a categories. Decline. Yeah. Permanent demographic. job losers. You, you referred to it uh, earlier, Marissa. 27 weeks or longer unemployed. Yep. That's right. That's Good right. job, Marissa. Good job, Marissa. Right, she gets a cowbell. That is definitely a cowbell. She gets a cowbell. That was good. That was a weak cowbell, but okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, so, drop it off your house. You can, you can now do the cowbell going forward. <laughs> I, uh, well, you know what? The, I, I have an idea. Mm-hmm. We should all get together in the office and do this podcast together. That'd be kind of cool. Actually, Office is open. Mind soon. blowing if we did that. Yeah, Marissa, you have to fly out. 
Yeah. I, I will oh, Marissa, you got to fly yeah. out for this. I will wait <laughs> sure. until Marissa's out Next to make your way out. Are you flying out, by the way, anytime soon? No, no. plan. Oh, no. All right. Okay. Not we'll to sit in an empty office. All right. So, so what was your statistic, Chris? It seems a little uh, lame to me. It, but, uh, <laughs> the decline in long-term unemployed. Oh, long-term. 274,000. So there's 1.4 million long-term unemployed now. That's still above, about 300K above what it was in February 2020. Um, so not quite back all the way yet, but making, making progress. And this is usually the, the toughest segment, right, to, to get reintegrated into the labor market. So. So can you say that again? How far away away from pre-pandemic levels for folks that are more than twenty-seven weeks unemployed, long-term? About three hundred k, three hundred seven thousand, three hundred seven thousand. So, well, and it fell with two hundred seventy-three k last month. Yeah, yeah, two seventy-four. Yeah. Okay, so we so, could be there next month or the month easily, after easily. Goodness gracious. Okay. That's How do you square one. that with the uh, the beverage curve? So the beverage curve is the relationship between job openings and the unemployment rate. It's so an outward shift in the beverage curve, which we have today, suggests that the labor market's less efficient, or there's you know, structural unemployment you know, in the short run. So, but that's Chris's number. You know, that long-term unemployment, which is a proxy for structural unemployment, is coming down pretty quickly. But the beverage curve is still shifted way out. But Don't you think that that's pandemic-related yeah. weirdness with the labor force? I mean, maybe it's a supply side recession where yeah i wonder if we calculate it by industry i wonder if like leisure and hospitality has been you know the biggest outward shift in the mm -hmm. beverage curve this also happened after the Probably. financial crisis remember same mm -hmm. exact thing and we're all saying you know, what's going on what's going on and then it just came right back into where it had been historically you know mm -hmm. this thing settled in i suspect that's the case here okay ryan what's your statistic all right so it's, i'll give you a hint it's close to marissa's but all right, I'll give you three numbers. You seem a 11. little bit. You seem a little hesitant with. Yeah. nervous. I know. I'm yeah, you seem a little this. nervous. You're like fidgeting, and you know what? The I know. Heck? I know. All right, three numbers: eleven point two six three million, five point nine openings. five two million. Oh. oh, very. Chris got openings. Very good. What do you so say? Eleven point two million openings. Yeah, Less job positions. openings. Five point nine five two million, and then eleven point six eight nine million. They're all related. Are they all in the jolts, the job opening labor turnover survey? 5.9 is hires. Uh, the first one's jolts. That's it. The other two. Oh, first one. Okay. So okay, job other... openings is 11.2 or 11.3 okay. million. It, what's the second one? 5.952 million. That's the number of unemployed. Exactly. Very good. People. Yeah. And then what is 11.689 million? And you're saying it's related, it's only related because it's a job statistic? Oh, oh, is that the uh, U6? Mm -mm. No. 11 point... Huh. It's in the uh, household survey data? It is. Okay. You got to do a little bit of a calculation. Oh, little, you got to do a little, little addition. Calculation. Oh, something plus something. Correct. Okay. I don't know. Do you guys it, know? Oh, is it... Mercy, you, Mercy you, you, get, you can get this one. Saying I can't get this one? Is that what you're saying? That's what he said. Re yeah, uh, that's, that's, what he's, that's what he's implying. All right, now I got to think about this because now that's a challenge. He laid down the that's gauntlet, the gauntlet. Yep. As, he, as they said. The challenge has been. Uh, I'll give you a hint. Okay, give us a hint. It's unemployed plus something. Oh, is it? Yeah. Is it the U6? I got that. Unemployed? U6? Discuss no. that. Nope. No. Discuss that. Earlier, earlier conversation. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know, Chris. Do you know? No. Like Chris is, is like it a subset down. of not in the labor force? I'm Ryan? trying to. I'm I'm writing. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to do some math. Is here. it <laughs> Ryan? Is it a subset of people that aren't in the labor force? Uh, yes. Because it's close to that wanted job, marginally attached. No, that's. No, you got it. It's unemployed plus those not in the labor force that want a job. So okay, a lot of attention. You look at job openings, eleven million north of 11 million. And everyone's saying, well, that ex grossly exceeds the number of people that are unemployed, which is roughly 6 million. But if you add in the oh, people that are not in the labor force, but want a job, we have 11.7 million. So, you know, there's not a labor supply shortage. It's, you know, it's, it's a tight right. labor market, but it, people are there. You just got to find them. Yeah. 
Okay. All right. That would have been, that's pretty tough. You have to admit, well, I guess the first one was pretty easy. And well, it was my statistic plus unemployed. the number of unemployed. Yeah. 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 A little tough. That's a little You should have gotten that one, Mark. I, yeah. Okay. You, okay. Whatever you say, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> What's yours? <laughs> well, I'm a little embarrassed by mine too, to be frank, because you'll never get it, but it's a really good one. And it, and I'll give you, <laughs> I'll give you a big, I'll give you a big hint. It has nothing to do with the employment report because I knew okay. all you guys would be all over the employment report, and I'd be the last to go, and I'd you know have a hard time coming up with the statistics. Did you learn this number on the on your conference call with the New York Fed? I did not. Okay, but I did. I I will give you a huge hint. Huge. It is on EV Economic View, which is the is website. It, is it you, labor market related or not? Uh, directly. Uh, no, it not at all uh, related to the labor market. All right, so here we go, Chris. Inflation. Right, ready? And I'm gonna give you two DNI. numbers. DNI. I'm gonna give you two numbers. Here we go. Seven point four percent. Ready? And the other one is twenty five point six percent. And the I'll give you another big hint. The seven point four percent is the month to month percentage change. The twenty five point six percent is the year over year percentage change. These are big numbers, right? So, what do you think that number is? Any right, is it U.S. related or is a real? It's U.S. Here? It's U.S. Okay. It's, it's you know obviously related to uh, inflation, and it does connect the dots back to the Russian Ukraine invasion. I think to some degree. Um, that's that's also a big hint. Is this so gasoline this is prices? A- gasoline prices? No, that would be too easy. That would be a that no. This is this is better than that. But you're in the you're in the right ballpark. Your cut your mind heating. is in the right place. Is it what? heating oil? No, no. Was it in the ag price report? Yes, that came out the this ag. Week? The ding, man, she's good. Ag, yeah. Wow, Marissa. Ag, ag so, prices. Yeah, she's wheat? very good. Very good. Or is it all ag prices? Uh, it's all yeah, all agriculture. Okay. It's uh, prices received by farmers, all agricultural goods. So that would be crops and livestock. And in the month of uh, uh, February, which is, I, guess, I think it is February, the last data point, let me just check. Yeah, it's February. Uh, the, that increase was almost, in, that, was cro- that was crops, not livestock. But year over year, livestock prices are up 35%. Crop prices are up 17 And, you know, this goes to lots of things, obviously, including the higher uh, cost of uh, fuel, which you know is an energy, which is you know key to production of agricultural products, but it's also I think maybe partly related to what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, because not only did that disrupt uh, energy markets, oil, natural gas markets, but it's been a huge disruptor to a lot large parts of the agricultural global agricultural export market for wheat, for corn. Uh, for soybeans, for sunflower oil, and and fertilizer. Fertilizer is a big export, and that's been also uh, quite disruptive. And, you know, obviously this goes to just another source of overall inflation. And I I don't think it's over. I mean, I think we're going to see much more pass-through here uh, in higher food prices. And food prices actually matter more. See you, Chris. We're almost done, by the way. Uh, But uh, go ahead. Go go, go do what you need to do. Uh, You know, in the Consumer Price Index... Uh, I believe energy, which includes the cost of gasoline and home heating, everything is probably what, Ryan, 7% of the CPI. Mm-hmm. And food prices are, I think, 13, 14% of CPI. Correct. So almost twice as much. So this is very, very important and obviously a, a big concern you know, around the world. Um, okay. Uh, sorry about that. I knew that was a little hard, but no, it, Marissa, I mean, that was impressive that you got that. That was impressive, though. That was, yeah. That was pretty good. Very good. I tip to you. So you could tell she's a careful consumer of your work, Ryan, on uh, economic. Oh, I would, I would never have Very that. much so. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, uh, Chris has left. Um, I, I think we'll keep this a short podcast. There's a lot of other topics to discuss in the labor market. Maybe we'll keep them for next job Friday. Uh, we, I think at some point we got to go back, talk about remote work. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are there on that and productivity. Uh, talk a little bit more about the great resignation or reshuffling, you know, what's going on there. We, we kind of talked around that, but not right to it. And, uh, you know, talk a little bit more about the wage dynamics uh, and, you know, what that means for overall inflation. So there's a lot to talk about, but we'll have you back and we'll, we'll do that. Um, before we sign off, 
Anything else? Here's another open-ended question for both of you. Any other things we should be talking about or things I, be, I should be saying? Uh, oh, I should mention, um, Sarah uh, mentioned to me that I should uh, let everyone know that we are going to have a bonus podcast. We've been having a few of these uh, along the way here. And this one is to answer all of the listeners' questions. And we're going to have uh, Emily Mandel, one of the other economists at Moody's, uh, to help moderate that. So I won't be the moderator for that one. I'll be uh, an answerer if that's a right term. So we'll be doing that. Um, but anything else, uh, Ryan, do you want to mention? Marissa? I think we covered it. We did? Okay. Marissa, we covered it? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Very next good. time we can talk about uh, you know some of the special questions that BLS does related to the pandemic. They all improved. They all improved too. February, March. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. So the number of people that were able to work because of the pandemic that fell. So we should make further progress in, in April. Okay. We'll talk about that. We'll put a pin in it. Okay. With that, we're going to call this a podcast. Thanks everyone. Talk to you next week. <laughs>